Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is one I'm very, very excited about. It is with a, I guess, TikToker, I guess that's who she is, named Designa Lily. She is one of the people that I've worked with in my social media coaching program. She was the very first person I worked with, actually, when I was still kind of beta testing it, figuring it out. And it works super well, but not because I'm some kind of genius. It's because she put in the work. She's super smart. She is up to, I think, 30,000 followers on TikTok now, which is a great number for somebody who's in a particular niche like she is. She is a product designer in Silicon Valley. So the kind of people who design apps and websites and things like that, design any kind of digital product, that's what she does. And that is a world that I spent about four years in when I worked at Creative Live, which is like a Silicon Valley backed online education startup. I was in that world for quite a while. I found it super interesting and educational. I actually used to write code back in the day, like in the lamp stack days. I was a pretty decent like front end developer. I suck now, my skills are laughably out of date, but I used to be okay at it. And so I've still, you know, kind of always paid attention to that world. And, you know, part of me kind of wants to go back to that world. Something I really miss since technology and music don't really cross paths very much and I really miss the tech side of things. But anyway, we talk about all of that in, a, in this episode. A couple things. Number one, unpacks exactly what is the tech world like as an employee? Like, why does everyone talk about Silicon Valley? What is different about it? Because there's a lot of weird shit about Silicon Valley. We unpack all that. And then we talk about how she built her following on TikTok and where she's headed with that. So if you're interested in TikTok or you're interested in tech or interested in product design, anything like that, this one will be for you. I really like this episode. Before we get into it, I wanted to, number one, mention that we do have merch if you want to support the show. Also, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the description. Patrons get every show a week early. There's an opportunity for me to review your band or your podcast, or YouTube channel, or whatever else. So there's a link to that in the show notes as well. And also, I want to thank our fabulous producer and editor, Deanna Chapman, who, as you probably know by now, is the brains behind the operation. She makes the whole thing work. So if you have questions about how to start or grow your podcast, you can check out her website at the link in the show notes as well. And with that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Design a Lily or Lily, whichever you prefer. Like, you should you should start introducing yourself to your parents' friends as Design a Lily. I think it's called personal branding. Yeah, I think I should. I think I'm trying to be like Tech League, but with a different energy. Exactly. We saw a guy at the beach yesterday who looked exactly like Tech Lead. My wife was like, "Look, look, it's a Tech Lead." <laughs> Maybe it was him. He's like working remotely now. That's right. He knows where he is. Could be him. Well, there's a few things that I wanted to talk about here. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll kind of give the audience your story as I know it, and you can tell me what I got wrong and fill in any blanks. We 
talked a couple months ago when you were kind of just starting your content journey and you at the time were a product designer at a tech company in San Francisco. Uh, you've since moved on from that job. And I think at that time you were kind of like, you know, uh, I've been doing these meetups and stuff. I would like to build a bigger audience for myself around thought leadership in terms of helping people get into the tech industry. What should I do? Should I do YouTube? Should I do Instagram? Should I do TikTok? Whatever. And then uh, we talked a couple times and then a month later or so you're like, oh, hey, I have 10,000 followers on TikTok now. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, I was expecting to kind of blow up on YouTube maybe in a year or so, you know, putting the work, kind of following your footsteps. But then I tried out TikTok on a whim because I think I saw someone mentioning it had like really great organic reach right now. So I was like, why not? And it seemed like a pretty fun platform. And at the time, no one was doing product design or anything that was like, super tech related. It was like kind of all over the place. And what made you kind of decide that you wanted to pursue this kind of angle of helping people become better product designers or kind of get into that industry? Where did that come from? Honestly, that came from the fact that when I was trying to break into the industry, I didn't know anything about it. So I came from Virginia and I was living in like Virginia, DC area for a while after I graduated from school in Virginia. And I didn't understand any of this UX stuff was, but it was so impactful in everyone's life. Like when I was in college, everyone was on Facebook, Snapchat, you know, all that. Like that was like fundamental in how we communicated, but nobody really understood how these products were being built or like how they were even made. So it was kind of like this almost mystical kind of thing that was named Silicon Valley. And I was always very curious about it. So when I did some research, I realized, okay, so products are designed or apps are designed by product designers and they are you know working in these companies doing you know um and and user research doing like user testing doing like visual design all this stuff and i had no idea what it was so i i broke into the industry by moving myself to san francisco and i realized that there's so many things that you know people can contribute to this industry but because it's kind of exclusive in a way it's kind of like in a very selective area in the world it is very hard to get information there if you don't live here so i wanted to kind of open this up to the rest of the world and like kind of show people like this is how technology is being built. And I feel like everyone should have a voice because this impacts everyone. Well, there's a few things I want to ask you about there. But first of all, for anybody who doesn't know, what exactly is a product designer in this context? So product designer is basically someone who creates and designs um, digital products. So if you think about product designer as someone who uh, will kind of draw the blueprint of how the app should look like and how it should function and all the interactions and how it should address the user's needs when they're using that product. That's essentially what a product designer is. And then a software engineer will come in later to build the product. So what would be an example of something that a product designer would do as part of their day-to-day -day work? As part of their day-to-day -day work, a product designer usually will do user testing with uh, iteration, they're designing with a design that they have come up with and they wanna see what users think of it, or they're meeting with their product manager and talking over the changes in the design they have made from the user testing, or they're either presenting in meetings and talking with other stakeholders like engineers, marketing, et cetera, about the changes in the product they're making and proposing this as the new feature slash uh, product change that engineers should build. So. Obviously, building is very expensive, so that's why product designers have the time they're actually presenting their proposed solutions before it's ever going to be built. So they might say something like, hey, I think we should change the way we handle photo uploads for this reason, because of this data, because of this user research. Here's how I think we should do it. Uh, and then they talk to everybody and get the green light to actually have it built. Yes, that's right. Uh, a lot of product design is uh, influence work, so you're 
showcasing your design uh, solutions to people in an organiza organization regarding the product because the product is, you know, what makes the organization money. So you're kind of showing them like, this is how we can prove to hit certain metrics and we're going to, you know, have more revenue if you do this. And stakeholders like, you know, VP of products, um, engineers, marketing, like I mentioned before, kind of give their approval and then you hand that off to engineers who will build it. And then you, you know, track metrics, see how it improves the product, you know, business, et cetera. I hope you didn't fuck it up. <laughs> exactly. Because if you did, um, it's normal. But at the same time, you know, having good metrics is what, you know, gets you the next job. <laughs> right. So you got in, like you said, you got in in a little bit of an unorthodox way. There are people who go to school for product design, but you didn't, from what I understand. And you had some, one of the things you talk about a lot is kind of how school did not prepare you to do what you do. That's right. On the East Coast, product design is really unknown. Uh, that the closest thing that people talk about is UX design, which is user experience, which is a little different because product design is essentially product strategy and user experience. How I got in was really through like a really scrappy way of going to hackathons, you know, building my own products with teams, consulting for early stage startup, um, startups before making my portfolio and then honing in on my website. I mean, it's a lot of like scrappy work because again, product design is so relatively new. It's not really that well understood. And in terms of programs offered in the country, the only one that's well known is like the product design uh, undergrad program, Stanford. The other one was like interaction design by CCA. But those are like, you know, in the Bay Area. So they're really not anywhere else in the world. And every, everything else right now in the market is kind of user experience design, which is still, still a little behind. So the reason why it's like so hard to understand and also uh, for me, uh, coming from a background of like another design field, it's kind of the way it is right now because again it's like so new and it's like the wild west of design you always kind of talk shit on like oh my art school professors didn't teach me x or y can you talk about that a little bit yeah so my art professors are frankly because they were in virginia it was kind of like a hipster artsy scene so a lot of them were still stuck in the print design world and the graphic design world and most of them making it was advertising agencies slash you know having your own studio and none of them really understood like the startup scene or like the user experience side of like product or anything related to that. I think the closest thing I got was website design, which HTML and CSS, which is like so behind. And I think it's just really the location and like again, the silo, you know, they're really like in a, located in like kind of a small town. Well, not really a small town, the capital of Virginia, but it really is a small town compared to like San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles. So I think that's why my art school was kind of really out of touch with all these new fields and what was happening in the world, especially with technology. And they actually had this like weird apprehension towards technology and business because it was seen as something that sucks away creativity. So why would somebody, well, I guess, how did you find out about, I know you said you talked about using the products and stuff, but like, how did you find out like, oh, if I move to San Francisco or move to the Bay Area and start going to these hackathons, I might be able to get a job at one of these kind of companies. Like, how did you find out about that? So I actually didn't really find out about that. I just decided that, you know, if I was going to make it into the tech scene, like really I should go where like, you know, it is the heart of tech, which is San Francisco at this point. And I actually looked into New York and Los Angeles but ultimately just realized, you know, if I wanted to go into the dark startup scene, I really had to go to San Francisco. And I figured if you are going to be near those industries or, you know, in the heart of it, at least you'll get a lot more information and a lot more relevant interview practices that you won't get elsewhere. So I decided to move there myself to see what it was all about, understand like everything that was going on inside like the world of Silicon Valley. 
And I just realized, you know, Googling and searching online, there's only so much you can have. But having that interpersonal experience with people you're meeting one-on-one, that's just something you can't buy. Well, that's got to be pretty intimidating because, as you said, Silicon Valley is pretty exclusive in a lot of ways. For one, the Bay Area is fucking astronomically expensive. Number two, (laughs) it attracts, like, some of the most, like, well-educated people on the planet from, like, the best top-name schools, lots of which have their parents' money to bankroll them and stuff. So that's pretty intimidating. What made you believe that you could do it? I figured if I could move to a city like DC and have no connections and kind of make it out here, I could do the same thing for another expensive city like San Francisco, which is, you know, the most expensive city in the US, but it wasn't that much expensive. Like it wasn't double if I was willing to get a roommate. So I was willing to make those sacrifices for the experience because when you're living in the city, you realize how much rent actually costs versus what you read online where people give you like astronomical numbers. The BuzzFeed article, it's like, oh, this closet costs $4,200 a month. Right. No, it's no, I've never met someone who lived in a closet that costs that much. But it is still expensive, though. And, you, and there are a lot of very well-educated, very well-connected people. And that has got to be intimidating. That is because you feel like an outsider at first. I'm not going to lie. When I first started going to hackathons, I honestly felt like kind of an imposter because I didn't know how anything worked. And I was even like learning all these districts in San Francisco, which I had no idea was. I mean, I Googled a lot, but when you Google, there's still like, I mean, you know the names of things, but you don't understand where they're located. You don't understand the history. There's just like a lot of context missing. But after living there for about like half a year to a year, then I really started like connecting the dots and feeling less like an imposter. So I feel like it's a matter of time, but also a matter of putting yourself out there because I did go to a lot of events and I did like try to, you know, read up on things that were happening um, in the area. I also try to go like new events like meetups or Eventbrite and just really try to put myself out there. And then the posture feeling just slowly went away. So tell me about those first couple events you went to. How did you kind of introduce yourself to people, break the ice and start to become part of the community? Like walk me through the exact like kind of conversations that you had. <sighs> it's been like almost like two, three years ago, I think. So from what I can recall, I first joined Facebook groups, started chatting with people there, you know, just introducing themselves like, hey, I'm from DC. I just moved to the area. You know, I'm looking to, you know, do X, Y, Z. And then people just kind of hit me up and like people are really gracious with their time. They're like, hey, you know, get some coffee here and there. And I met some pretty cool people from there on, you know, went to every event people invited me to just to like get a feel. And actually started playing a lot of volleyball. That's um, another thing that I forgot to mention is I'm a really big volleyball player. So I scoped out all the open gyms in the area like every single weekday and I would like go out there. And yeah, just from doing a lot of things, you know, not being in the house, you just kind of slowly learn and put yourself in there in the culture. I think that's so smart. The idea of doing (laughs) things that are not like directly related to like a job search like for me you know i do jujitsu and jujitsu is actually great for networking like the place i used to do it at like probably 80 percent of the people there were amazon engineers so like if i wanted to get a job at aws all the friends i made at jujitsu would have been a great place to start and i don't want to work for aws right now but the point (laughs) is that like those kind of you know, extracurricular activities are actually really great networking. And I feel like a lot of people just don't even think about that. They just like robotically send out resumes and apply online, which as far as I'm concerned, you might as well just fucking throw that in a black hole. That's true, especially for San Francisco. And I will admit I did that and I never got like, I never got a quality lead. I mean, for San Francisco, cold applying is a complete waste of time. I mean, there's somebody, like even if you have a great resume, 
And even if you're very qualified, there's going to be someone else who has an equally great resume, but also knows the hiring manager or knows someone who knows him or her. And I feel like that's the part that people don't understand is that when these jobs are up like online, half the time they already have somebody in mind who they want to hire for it. So by the time you see that job posted, it's kind of too late a lot of the time. Yeah. And I've never known anyone who have code applied for a big tech company and got through cold application. Honestly, people say it's a scam. I kind of agree because I've never met anyone that got through that way. You have to go through referrals or I talk about this in one of my videos. You have to either cold email them and get into their inbox because if you go through the application online, you, you just will never get noticed. So you go put yourself out there. You meet people, kind of build a network and stuff. And when did you realize like, like what were the signs that you were like, okay, this is working. I'm starting to become part of this thing. I think after doing so many hackathons, because I did quite a few, uh, I kind of tried to train myself in the process of product design thinking. And from seeing the products that were created and seeing like it works and trying out different methods of user testing and eventually winning two actually hackathons that led into incubator programs. That was when I started feeling like, hey, like this is something that I could do. You know, product design is something that I have full ability to, that I can make a real impact in the world. And I started believing that when I saw it was coming to fruition. So I think really it's a matter of doing what you set yourself to do every day, like that integrity you build with yourself. And then the second is you're seeing that real world response. Then I feel like your identity, like your mind does accept your new change in identity. And I feel like that's something that would have never got if I just stayed in DC, because again, there is not that community and there isn't that response from the real world. So were you ever kind of having the conversation of like, well, I might just move back to D.C. with my tail between my legs or was that never an option? To be frank, that was my worst fear. And I definitely had that sometimes. You know, it was really heartbreaking at first. I mean, I went through a year without ever landing a full time job. I mean, I was really hustling. And there were times I was thinking, you know, like I saw other people getting in the field and I, I was wondering, like, you know, why isn't this happening to me? Am I doing something wrong? Um, is it just is it like something I'm just not getting? You know, am I just lacking some kind of self-awareness? And then after a while, when I start interviewing, I think I interviewed like 10 or eight on-sites before I got like two offers. It was just becoming a process. And every time I landed a final on-site, I would just tell myself like, hey, this is a good sign. It means I'm about to land something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like rejection is nothing. But the fact that I'm getting to on-site, I mean, that means something. So that was the encouragement I had for myself when there was no positive, you know, encouragement. So what I love about this is like, it's proof that there is a template for people who are an outsider to, you know, become part of tech or, or anything else. I mean, you could apply this same approach to if you want to get into, I don't know, the craft beer industry, which I don't know anything about, but I would do the same thing. I'd go, well, where are all the craft breweries? Where do those people hang out? Like, how do I get to know them? And then just do what you did. I mean, it works for anything. Yeah, exactly. Like at the end of the day, it's all just about the people, right? And if you're talking their language, they respond. So I think at first I wasn't speaking their language. You know, I was I didn't really understand the product culture. I think it's like that for almost any industry. Mm -hmm. It's like at the end of the day, it's just people communicating together to solve a problem together. So putting yourself out there, I mean, being there in person is really valuable. I mean, you could try to do it remotely, but that's a, a, a much more difficult way of getting into the industry. So yeah, it's just like people are hanging out with them, talk to them, you know, learn from them. And then eventually you'll probably become one of them. But even so, even if you like, let's say you live in another country and it's just not feasible for you to move to whatever city you want to move to, 
that might be a deal. But even so, there's still a lot you could do online. Like if you make a really badass project of like whatever it is that you do and you put it out online and build relationships with people online and stuff like you can still make something happen. Like if you're if you're really you got to be really good, I would say. But yes. if, you're like, if you're really exceptional, people will notice no matter what, I think. Right. I agree. It's just when you're online, you have to be exceptional. Like you said, there is a higher bar of um, standard you have to meet because you're, you have so much competition online. Whereas in person, it's a little bit more, you know, interpersonal, like one to one. So when you're online, you can definitely make it happen. But you just have to like, I mean, it's going to be just as much work in person, if not more. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs. But what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. One of the things that you do that I just really love is you explain all these like unstated, uh, I don't know if they're rules necessarily, but kind of all these unstated things about the industry that nobody says that I didn't understand until, you know, I sort of learned a lot of these things the hard way. For example, uh, you've kind of done a series here, which I love. Maybe you can explain this is about 
like different tech companies and like how they'll affect your resume. Yeah. Because resume management is like a super important thing that I didn't understand until I was way older than I wish I was. Yeah. So being online, you kind of get the feeling that um, everything is the same and companies don't care about brand names, schools, etc. That's just simply not true. People will say that online. Obviously, that reflects on them, the person saying it. But the truth is people do care a lot about like resumes in terms of like companies on your resume where you went to school. Like I've seen people that went to good schools that their portfolios aren't that great, but they've made like huge jumps in their career. It's like an unspoken thing, but um, it, it is there. Uh, people want to kind of portray this image that tech has, you know, no bias. It's kind of like no, no, no degree dropout could like just come Which in there. complete and then bullshit. Well, then why do all yeah, you motherfuckers it's... have a degree from CMU or Stanford? <laughs> right. It's, it's not true. I mean, maybe one person out of like a thousand or a hundred or probably more than a thousand. Yeah. Because I've never met one. So. Right. <laughs> the thing about when you, what you have on your resume. So, for example, Fang is like Facebook, Apple. Amazon, Netflix, Google. And if you were in one of those companies like Netflix, you could jump easily to another company like Facebook and maybe even Google, right? If you're Google, you can basically almost jump into anyone. So there is that unspoken rule because there's kind of tiers. And if you don't have that and you have a very scrappy experience like I have, you kind of have to show through your portfolio like amazing work to kind of make up for it. Whereas if you went to a company that is already well known, you can just have literally a blurb like, hey, I designed for this company, this is me, and a photo. And literally you get like emails of offers coming to you because they just want someone, a talent from that company. Yep. Like as soon as you get a job at AWS, if you're an engineer, you will start getting bombarded with job <laughs> offers out of the blue for things that have nothing to do with what you actually do. You're like, you know, I, I'm not a DevOps engineer, right? Like, you know, that's not what I do. But the point is that like, having the i think this is a really good way that you put it that like you can move laterally or down very easily once you have the right name on your resume but moving up is really hard and so you want to be careful to have the right names in your resume so that it makes it easier to open up future opportunities and so you you, you go into a lot of detail about this like tell us about some of these companies and kind of which ones you might want and might not want on your resume right i did talk about that and it was kind of controversial because a lot of comments <laughs> were really upset but I'm just going to be really frank there because it's kind of something everyone knows um, it, when you're living in the valley and you are kind of like a yuppie, you know, young professional. So you don't want to stay at a company that is kind of behind the times too long. So if you're staying there for over four years and you're like a young professional, you know, like before you're like 40s or like 35, which is when ageism starts. If you stay there like past, like let's say four years to like five, six years, then recruiters will start kind of judging your ability technically and start to associate your yourself like your brand with that company name like oh you work you're 28 and you worked at oracle for six years you must suck yeah yeah like are you just behind the times like you're just not you know adapt enough to keep up i mean i hate to say it, it's just their technical bar is a lot lower mm -hmm. so that goes with design um product engineer etc maybe not so much sales that's like the only exception <laughs> hmm. yeah that's a good point and so as, as you said, if you have one of these, uh, if you have the wrong quote unquote name on your resume, you have to be scrappy and work a lot harder to get those jobs. I found out, I found this out the hard way and it, and it doesn't matter how good your work is to some, or it doesn't matter how good you are at what you do. They'll never even look at you if, if you don't have the right name on your resume. So like, that's the reason why I 
wanted to work for Abercrombie and Fitch because in the apparel industry at that time, they were like the top dog. They were like, you know, right, kind of right. like, you know, of, of mall retailers. They're like the Google of mall retailers that if you work at Abercrombie, you can go work anywhere in apparel that you want. Right. <laughs> and that's why I wanted to work there. And, and even outside of apparel, everybody knows that name. Now, the work that I did at Abercrombie was not nearly as challenging or important as the stuff I did at other places, but nobody cares because like, you know, as soon as you have to start explaining what you did and who you work for and stuff, you kind of already lost people. Whereas if you just say, I worked at Google or I worked at Abercrombie, they'll instantly go at a party like, oh, and the door is open. And and like you said, ageism and these other things, like I wish that these things weren't true, but I think it's so important for people to like understand what these like unstated, you know, institutional kind of filters are because whether whether right or wrong, they exist and you have to know how to work with them. Yeah, that's true. Um, I will say that tech is a little bit different because there is that startup culture, you know, embedded in Silicon Valley. So it's better to work for an early stage, like scrappy startup than it is to work for, you know, a very like um, kind of like uh, old school, mature company that's, you know, I hate to say this, but something like um, Oracle, Cisco, Intuit that I've already mentioned again. It's better to work for early stage startups earlier in your career and scrappy startups in your earlier career that have no brand names than it is to work for, you know, these kind of slower companies for like too long. So there is mm -hmm. kind of almost an inverse thing going on. It's like two spectrums. But whatever your industry is, you should know what these kind of cultural biases are because you are subject to them whether you like it or not. And I think I just I, I love I love that you're sharing this with people because nobody will say this publicly because it's kind of. I mean, it makes you sound like an asshole to say it, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people are like, that's not true. You know, that, you know, everyone's equal sort of thing. And it's just, yeah, no, every industry has its game, you know, the rules. And if you're long enough, you kind of learn and it's an unspoken thing. People obviously won't say, well, because you had this company resume, we kind of assume we're not as adapt at the time. So they'll never say it to your face. But then the response you get, you kind of feel it out. They'll definitely say it in like a debrief meeting, you know, or when they're reviewing resumes or something, you know, they'll it def I've heard those conversations. Yeah, they'll uh, they'll never send you that follow up email explaining why that's for sure. They barely give you any feedback after an interview. So yeah. usually it's just a rejection. Like, thank you. But we decided to move forward with another candidate. So I'm just a big fan of anybody that tells the truth, because for whatever reason, that's like such a rare thing on social media. I feel like that's changing a little bit, but just like telling the truth that everybody kind of knows but is unwilling to say is such a powerful thing to me how did you kind of arrive at that as the thing for your content because i know you did some like kind of how-to instructional stuff before how did you kind of arrive at this like let me tell you how this actually works kind of thing well i was trying to think of something that people of all ages would be interested in. And the first thing I thought of was, okay, talk about these famous tech companies, right? So the first one I did was Facebook, um, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Go Fang, right? That video, Fangle, with Uber and Lyft. And I was thinking, you know, this is something that people want to hear. You know, maybe they want insight into this world. And then maybe from there on, I find my audience who, you know, lives in this world. So that's kind of how I started. And then from there on, it led to more videos about other tech companies because people kept requesting them. And I just figured, you know, people already know this that are living in the valley. So why not just, you know, say like it is and like kind of show what companies have bad work cultures are kind of toxic and what companies are like, you know, actually com commendable and we should, you know, try to uh, follow their example. So 
that's where this whole tech video came from. Yeah, you you there's another one where you ranked them by like pay, work-life balance, and there was one other thing. I forget. I think I did the tech companies, a bunch of them, like um in terms of pay and work-life balance. And then the other one was like a spotlight. Is that the one you're talking about? I think so. I don't remember, but that was great too. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of shed light into this because it's something that I feel like everyone kind of knows um, who are already working industry. And it's not a surprise to anyone that lives here. But then you do meet a lot of people that are, you know, working for other companies and the other side of the country. And they are kind of peeved that you would say that. But, you know, again, this is Silicon Valley. So the standards are a little different. And if people want to move here, they have to know like what they're batting against. Also, I should be clear here because, you know, we've talked, so I know where you stand on this, but for anybody that's listening to this that might be like, oh, wow, this she's a horrible person. Like, she's just totally okay with all these, like, biases and, like, awful, like, stratifications. Like, you're not cool with that, right? No, 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 no. I, that's one of the things I talk about is diversity and inclusion is so important. And actually, throughout the years, it's kind of fallen down a little bit in terms of priority. Um I think Larry Page from Google used to actually, when Google first started, had this priority of hiring women. And then somewhere along the way, they kind of dropped those efforts. And now their numbers are very average compared to other tech companies. Um, you know, numbers like 2% of funded startups are like by women co-founders. I mean, that's just crazy. You know, it's 2020. So that's something I'm very against. And that's why I talk about those companies that have bad work cultures, because they have a practice of doing that. Here's something that I find interesting. I would like to know what you think about this. So uh, I go to these meetups and I read these articles and I hear people say the things like you just said about uh, people like VCs and, you know, C-level execs and stuff that say how committed they are to diversity and inclusion and how they want to hire more women and underrepresented minorities. And then every fucking quarter they get up there and say that the numbers haven't moved at all and we're trying really hard and gee whiz, like this is really important to us. And I'm like, well, what is it? Like, are you stupid or you don't give a shit because it's got to be one or the other because anybody if you were like the cmo and you got up there and like oh well we're trying really hard to raise revenue but we've been flat for nine quarters in a row you wouldn't have a fucking job so what do you think like why is it that people constantly give lip service to this and yet the number numbers never fucking move to reflect that that is a really like that's a, a question that's like layered with like so many answers. So I will try to break it down. Uh, I have personally seen this at um, some companies where they say they want to hire a woman in you know leadership, but then they still end up choosing the male candidate. Well, funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's part because the male candidate matches what they want more on paper. But you have to understand the requirements are made by you know men in leadership. So. All the requirements they want, they want like someone to perfectly match it. It's usually going to be another man. And again, historically, men have been giving more opportunities. So there's that. And, you know, there is a reason why women struggle really hard to break into leadership because they were not afforded the same opportunities. Like, for example, there was a saying that, you know, men are hired on potential, but women are hired on performance. Mm. And you can see why it is a lot harder for women to climb up because no one's going to take as much of a big bet on women as a man. And they can make like a huge career jump. I've seen this. I've seen a marketing undergrad from my school that made a jump from art director intern somehow into an art director at like a pretty well-known company. Mm -hmm. And I have never seen this in a woman. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you just see over and over again. There's a pattern. And then the other part is it's harder to find a woman to match that criteria. It takes a longer search and that costs companies more money. 
So companies don't want to do that because they want to hire someone quick, you know, come in and fix the problem mm-hmm. right away. But, you know, with less women in tech, um, because of, you know, barriers, the culture, et cetera, it's going to take a lot longer to find those women. And they probably can't match the criteria as well. Or if they do, maybe like equal to a, a male candidate you could find in three weeks. And this is also talked a lot about in Brotopia, which is a book that Emily Chang wrote. She was like a reporter and like for Bloomberg and like Silicon Valley and all that stuff. But yeah, there's just a lot of layers to that question. There's a, like a lot of complex you know, forces and that's why. I just find it very interesting that nobody ever raises their hand and says what I just said, which is like, what's up? Why do you keep getting up here and saying this? So you don't never fucking do it. It's like nobody wants to call this out because then they'd have to explain it and that would get really uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, there's a uh, an interview by the Sequoia uh, founder. I think he was interviewed by Emily, and she asked this question, "Why?" And he said it was because we don't want to lower our standards, and that's really common. Like that's the whole meritocracy myth is we don't want to lower our standards, right? But then conversely, it's funny because he got his big break, you know, back in his day because he didn't have a technical background, and someone took a chance on him, but yet he's not willing to do that for some, you know, for mm-hmm. another candidate. So. That's another issue of why um, women are not likely to be in leadership because, you know, they have to show in past performances that they've done this. But then how will they be able to show that if they never got a break? Mm-hmm. That's another reason why in the bottom and the you know entry mid-level employee like percentage, there's a lot more women. But then as you go up, the funnel is just like mm, that makes sense because you, you'll notice that if you actually look at the numbers, that's pretty common is that the, the percentage of women is decent uh, in the more junior ranks, but then you get up into like the, you know, VPs and S and stuff like that. And right. there's very few. They're all gone. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's it. The other thing, which I I've heard somebody bring up and it seems anecdotally true to me based on what I've seen is the idea of like meism, which is not that anybody has like a conscious bias, but if you notice, you know, the Indian managers tend to have a lot of Indian people on their team. The Chinese managers have a lot of Chinese people on their team. Mm-hmm. The Russians yeah. have Russians on their team. And it's not that anyone's, it's just that they are more comfortable assessing that person because it's more similar to them. And that is rational, but the outcome is probably not what we want. Right. And that also, again, is an answer to your question of why, you know, male leaders hire other men because, you know, again, they see themselves, their younger self, mm-hmm. and, you know, younger candidate. And it's kind of harder to have that, you know, with another woman or, you know, as a man, you know, seeing yourself in a younger woman, that's like a lot more rare. And I think people do tend to, you know, associate themselves with people like them. And I've heard like exactly like you said, Chinese managers like to hire Chinese people because, you know, from the same culture or background, they kind of understand the same like unspoken like mm-hmm. nuances and then Indian versus you know, and so forth. So that is a reason I, I've actually heard about this a lot in like different pods and like tech companies that they have this, you know, problem going on that when a manager of a certain culture or, or a certain mindset will start hiring the same kind of people. So there is part of that as well. So that's why there's like so many complex forces at, at work. The reason why that irritates me, and just to spell this out for everyone, the reason why this irritates me so much is because a lot of these people are the most like vocally woke on social media and stuff. But then if you look at their actual data at their company, it doesn't match up to all the shit they talk on Twitter. And that annoys me. Yeah, again, you know, it's reflecting on them, right? So yeah. they want to say things that look good and reflect well on them, but then they're never going to tell you all the mistakes and failures you know they've made because then they'll get criticism. And unfortunately, that's just how you know articles are like, especially on Medium and all these other platforms. People will always say like tell you what the good is, but you rarely hear about the bad because again, nobody wants to you know have their personal brand be tarnished. Right. So, what would your advice be for somebody? I mean, I guess other than what you did, but. 
Um, I'm sure you made some mistakes along the way and stuff. What would your advice be for someone who wants to do what you've done to have a job in tech in Silicon Valley? Uh, and maybe they are from a small town in some place in Ohio or something like that. It seems cool. What should they do? Well, the number one advice I would give, which is kind of difficult because not everyone can do this. I would move to a city that has a tech culture. And if you could move to Silicon Valley, if you really want to, you know, really like sharpen yourself with the best. I mean, there's really no replacement for that. Move through there, meet people, talk to people. I mean, do a lot of self-learning. But if you can't do that, another way is obviously connecting remotely, but also reading a lot of books. I wish I actually did that earlier on um, when I moved is reading books that were written by people in this area and also written by like professionals that have spent their whole life learning certain craft. That's another habit that I've picked up along the way that I found immensely, immensely rewarding. And then the third thing I would say is just not be afraid of failure because I had this intense fear of failing and then publicly not looking, you know, very good, like seeing all my friends succeeding in certain jobs or getting, you know, the jobs in the small towns that I wanted, you know, and feeling like, you know, I'm just why I'm not, you know, at this stage in my life like they are. But then realizing, you know, everyone has different journeys and like, you know, the failures that you have, it might right now it might not feel great, but it will pay off in the end. And you'll see that it's just a longer term vision. Well, let's talk TikTok also, because uh, you're better at TikTok than I am. So I would love to pick your brain on that. Uh, a lot of people are interested in that, too. What was the first success that you had there? And w what do you think made that successful? So when I started TikTok, I initially went a really generic route because I figured no one in tech or product design was going to be on there because everyone's, you know, Gen Z kids or something. I just had this misconception. And I started doing really generic videos, you know, trending stuff. I didn't work at all. Then my first video I really broke in was when I talked about my story. Generic of, trending stuff about what? Like like dances. You know, they have like um, hashtags that you can join oh, in. Oh, okay. Got, so literally just the top, top, top of the funnel, most basic stuff. Right. Like, you know, do for example, they have like um, one of the hashtags was like, you know, uses audio and then um, uses effect. And then they would like feature you with this hash, hashtag. So things like that. Um, I realized like earlier on that wasn't going to work because there's just so much noise and i think tiktok does this on purpose but they make you feel like you could be famous by doing anything like that mm -hmm. because you see people doing like very mediocre videos get like millions of views and like thousands of tens of thousands of likes you're like i could do better than that right and that's what you feel but then i feel like they are handpicking videos to feature to kind of come off that way or push because when i did them like I, it didn't come off that way at all or maybe those people had a large following already like i don't know so I started doing this one video about like how I broke into Silicon Valley, like how when I was a kid, I was kind of nerdy in my small town and I wasn't anybody. I was, you know, people knew me, but I wasn't like one of the popular cool kids. I liked anime and manga, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. And then it's funny now, like I broke into Silicon Valley and like that was like one of the videos that went viral was like that kind of like nerd come up mm -hmm. <laughs> storyline, which is a lot of Silicon Valley people. You know, it is a culture of nerds. That kind of took off and I realized, okay, well, so then I started making, you know, salary negotiation videos where, you know, you talk with a recruiter and they always want to pay you in equity. But, you know, with a startup, usually they fail like 99% of the time. Yeah. So it's like worthless equity. So people got that joke and I realized, wow, I could get really specific. That is, I'm actually surprised that there are people on TikTok who get that joke. But again, you know, I, I don't know what, there's probably close to a billion people on TikTok now or something. Are there a few thousand people who would get any given joke? Definitely. Right. Just a matter of finding them. Right. Because um, like I said earlier on, when I was searching these hashtags for UX design, product design, there wasn't like one person doing like consistent product design, UX design videos. 
there was another person who was doing like videos about living in like Seattle, but it wasn't like specifically like tech and design. It was like about his life. Right. So I was like only person that was doing like design sort of related stuff. So I just figured like maybe there wasn't an audience. Right. Mm -hmm. But then when I started creating them and people start copying, I realized, oh, the audience is there. It's just no one was doing it. I sort of realized the same thing. Like it was seemed weird to me that nobody was talking about these bands because a lot of them sold like millions of albums. Some of these they had like Billboard top ten albums. Like really, like literally nobody is talking about this other than these a few people like talking shit on them. Uh, and I sort of wondered the same thing. Like, does that mean there's no audience for this, or does it mean that there is an audience and nobody's taking advantage of that? And so I think that's an important thing for people to understand when they look at any like given kind of content vertical is like. That's the question you should be asking. And you don't know until you start out, until you start trying stuff. Right. And I think the audience is there. You know, if you're starting a niche, I feel like they are there. You just have to always cater to that niche. That's how TikTok works. You can't like deviate too much from it because then your algorithm's going to get all messed up. And then even if you get a lot of likes, people aren't going to follow you. Mm-hmm. So that's just one important thing is with TikTok, you have to be super niche. And then, of, of course, like YouTube, once you pick up enough followers, then you can start, you know, sharing a little bit about your life and people will care. But in the beginning, like nobody cares that you're, you know, going to the park and, you know, you're having a nice day. You know what I mean? Like, that's just right. things that people. Yeah, they like, don't know. Why would I give a shit what you're eating for lunch? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting thing I've been talking about with people is like, you know, oftentimes people will will sort of have expertise in a particular area, but they want to talk about something else because they're kind of bored with the thing that they're an expert at. Like, let's say that I really know about like long haul trucking and like, but I really want to talk about politics and my, the way that I've been approaching that for everyone is like, at the end of the day, you're going to find the overlap of people who are into long haul trucking and politics. But the question is, which one of those things do you lead with? And I think the move is you lead with the thing where you have deep expertise and, and that, and over time you earn, the right to talk about the other thing. That's right. I completely agree with that. That's my experience too that I found because I've posted other videos that didn't do well because they kind of deviated from that. And I've learned like, at least until when I build up enough of a following, then when I share my opinion on something that's kind of related, people will care. And I feel like uh, if I had it to do over again for myself, I would have probably put in a little bit more personal or lifestyle content earlier on like as soon as i started getting like real traction on youtube but i'm i'm a coward so i was afraid to like deviate from what was working but i think it is so important to make sure that you're building a connection with uh people who are following you as a human not just the information that you were delivering in other words like sometimes you see on youtube there might be a video it's probably true on TikTok too, but there might be a video with like 3 million views, but the channel only has 8,000 subscribers right? because they didn't do a good job of tying that, whatever they were saying to that person as a human. So like, oh, this video is really cool, but I should follow her because I want to hear the other things she has to say, uh, especially like tutorials are a good example of this. Like maybe they got really, you know, kind of struck gold with SEO. And so some tutorial has a ton of views, but it never actually turned into personal branding for them. Right. I've noticed that too. I've also seen that in some of my viral videos, like they were unrelated. And when I shared them, I got like 700,000 likes and uh, sorry, 700,000 views and they're still going. But in terms of actual followers, it was like, like no followers. Like, I don't think I experienced much of a like drastic growth in terms of like before I had a pretty good ratio of like, uh, I think a hundred views was about one like. And then when I started sharing videos that were not really related, 
And even though they're easy hits, you know, like anyone can film them and make, you know, mm -hmm. it viral. It didn't do anything for my channel. So it's like traffic that's not really worth anything. Vanity views. Exactly. Vanity views. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you then, what is your goal with this? I know you've kind of tossed around a few potential directions for this. Like, do you want to do you want to be TikTok famous? Do you want to use this to get a job? Do you want to sell a product? Where's your head on that? Definitely not to get a job because I've actually have commentators say that you, you're going to be blacklisted from these companies. And I find that kind of funny because it could be true if, you know, a recruiter saw that and, you know, the head of hiring or whatever saw it and was kind of peeved at me. But at the same time, I don't really want to work at the, you know, the companies I talk about that yeah. were kind of toxic. So I think ultimately... Or, or, the, or somebody at that company might say, you're right. I've been telling everyone this for years. <laughs> Will you please come work for us? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. I never thought about that. Because wow. people people don't, the opportunities that come your way are oftentimes non-intuitive. And I think it's important for people to consider like the second order opportunities that could happen like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I Honestly, I've never thought of it from that perspective. I guess ultimately I would think that TikTok is something that I started building my personal brand with along with YouTube. And it's something that has helped me connect with a lot of people in my industry. So it's still, you know, I'm still kind of small, but I'm like building up. And I feel like maybe this is going to be a great platform for me to speak in the future of something I saw I felt like wasn't right. I can call them out on it. And there's like real repercussions, you know, versus me mm -hmm. being you know, somebody that's going to talk about it, but like only my friends would know. So maybe that and also just helping people around the world. I've had a lot of requests um, you know, DMs asking about like, how do I break into product or tech? You know, how do I do this and that? And I tell them like, frankly, the truth, you know, I don't give them like the sugarcoat version, which is what you'll find on Google. Mm -hmm. So I kind of try to direct people, you know, to the right resources. And I've actually had people tell me like they've got jobs with the videos I filmed. So I, I feel really happy about that. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Because when I was starting out, nobody was posting their process. Like nobody was showing what work they were, you know, how they were doing it to get the job. So I was like, you know what, even if I look like a fool, at least people can see what's really going on. So I think that being your authentic self will only help, especially in an industry like this, where it's all about standing out and being different. Like it's okay if you turned off 30 people, if the right three people then are like, oh my God, I love her. Like this is the person that I want to work with. Who cares if those other 30 people don't like you? Yeah. And I want to thank you for that advice because, you know, initially at first I was really afraid of that public, like negative experience from, you know, having the video posted and then people like telling, you know, bad things about you. Like, you don't know this, you know that. But then I realized, like you were saying, you find the people with the right values and the same values as you, and you're able to speak to them like fairly like directly. And that's been the most rewarding thing is when I go on live streams, I talk with people and they're like, you know, I experienced this or that. And it's the same thing that you've been saying, or, you know, they also believe in diversity and inclusion. So I want to thank you for that piece of advice. Cause honestly, it really changed the image that I was like portraying online. You know, I was going kind of like easy at first, mm -hmm. kind of like vanilla, but then when you give me that advice, like, who cares, you know, and I just say my truth. It always works. It always does. You know, not to say that there won't be some bumps along the road, but it's mm -hmm. always right. the best in the long run. Okay. So you said it's not getting a job, but you know, maybe if the right thing comes your way, then cool, fine, whatever. But what do you want out of this? Or do you not know yet? So far, what my current idea of what I want out of this is to connect with people in my industry that I wouldn't have been able to cross before. So one of the connections I made was uh, her name's Elise, and she was on, on Planet of the Apes. Or sorry, Planet of the Apps. <laughs> <laughs> 
the short-lived uh, Apple show with Gary Vaynerchuk and who was it, Jessica Alba or something? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Gwen Paltrow and Will I Am. So that's just crazy, you know, small little coincidences, uh, coincidences. And she left a lot of comments in my videos like, hey, I experienced this. This is exactly, you know, um, what I've gone through or this is like, you know, what we know in Valley, like totally agree with this opinion about this and this company. So having, you know, people back you up and then people that are, you know, able to really feel like connected with you on those values that's been really rewarding and i would never have crossed paths with her otherwise i mean there was just like you know there was just no way of knowing that she shared those values with mm -hmm. me if i didn't make that content yep yep you'll find the people who who you want to find for example uh the video i put out today which is about racism and metal which by the time this comes out it'll probably be a few <laughs> weeks old but it is by far my most disliked video ever wow <laughs> and, and i'm and i'm not worried about that at all because like I'm just filtering it's like 30% dislikes yeah, which is out. super right, right. super high for me. I'm just filtering out a bunch of people who can go fuck off. Like that's fine. Wow, it's awesome. <laughs> you know? So if if I lose a couple thousand subscribers, bye. Right. It's like who's my true audience that wants to hear, you know, my truth is. So if they want to unsubscribe or unfilter or whatever or like unfollow me, that's that's honestly doing me a service, right? Yes. I guess that's how your mindset too. And the people who stick around are going to hopefully like me even more because they said, oh, you know, because they value that I was honest. So I think it's very easy to get lost. And I have to remind myself of this all the time. It's very easy to like get lost in the numbers or sort of always default to doing what gets the most engagement. But that's not always the right answer. Yeah, I completely agree. I've noticed even if I post videos that get like, you know, a lot of views about this and that, that I've already done before. They're easy videos to make, but I don't feel that fulfilled. And I feel like when I'm doing videos that don't get that many views, people who watch them, they have a pretty high engagement rate. And they're also more likely to follow me in like my future content. So the vanity views, it's kind of hard sometimes to not look at that because you see your peers are making videos with like so-and-so amount of views. Mm -hmm. But you just got to tell yourself at a day, it's not about like traffic. It's about like what you do with that platform. Well, I think that's a good note to end it on. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited for how much progress you made so quickly. I absolutely love your content. So anybody who's listening, uh, follow. It's at Design a Lily. That's L-I-L-Y, just one L uh, on TikTok. Is it that on everything? Yes, it is. I know you, you changed it a while ago. Yeah, it's a, I changed it from Dance Lily, but now it's Design a Lily on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Okay, perfect. So go follow Lily if you have any interest in tech or really if you just have any interest in kind of managing your career or breaking into any kind of industry because the stuff that she's talking about, you can easily apply to anything. So love what you're doing. I'm excited to see where you go from here and thank you again for being on. Thank you so much, Ben. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast <laughs> 